Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. Did your parents make you do something that is, quote unquote, for your own good that you didn't want to do, but now in retrospect, you realize it was a good idea? Of course. Of course. Okay, me too. I have several examples. What is one that came to your mind? Oh, I mean, like, there are some really basic things. Like, I hated brushing my teeth when I was a kid. Oh, come on. But they're like, <laughs> oh, you know, it's for your own good. But Use like, you know so many things eating healthy i i wanted to eat a bunch of junk food which i still have a problem with but like you know having a balanced diet getting up off my and not watching tv and going out and playing sports or getting up at the crack of dawn to go skiing that's too curse word in 10 seconds (laughs) (laughs) you know sorry but it's yeah i'm just i have a lot of feelings about this because as you know i have two teenagers at home right now and the number of times i'm like you need to do this well i don't want to i'm like well just it's gonna make you like less just just do it just do it it's for your now own you good know how your parents feel oh I my guess. gosh i think i told you this before maybe i don't know if it was on the podcast or not but the number of times when i was a kid my dad would tell me i can't wait till you have kids so you know exactly how you've made me feel right now and guess what you did have kids <laughs> oh so i have called him i don't even know how many times and i'm like dad i'm so sorry how did you not murder me how did, like how did you raise me to not be a complete dork um because like i could have ended up going a whole bunch of different ways but like also how am i still alive because how did you not just like <laughs> ah, so much frustration like this morning i was tidying up a little bit and i walk into the kids bathroom and there is a towel in the bathroom sink like a shower towel okay, interesting place to like put a full-size it. towel and i'm asking the kids well who's whose towel is it well i don't know it's one of you <laughs> there's only two of you nobody happens to know oh it's just been there things don't just be there somebody puts them there maybe it's james <laughs> no it wasn't james <laughs> he's not gonna go around and put a shower towel in the kids bathroom sink anyway back to the question at hand yes my parents made me do things for my own good when i was a kid I greatly appreciate it. I have obviously turned out quite well, I think anyway, um, and have had have been very successful. And I credit a lot of that to the things my dad made me do that I didn't want to do. And then now I'm trying to pay that forward to my own children so that they can be contributing members of society. Yeah, in 10 years, though, thank you. Yeah, there are tons of things that if it was up to you, you would have never done it. But your parents either made you do it. And in retrospect, I'm grateful for it. My example is, well, thankfully, my parents didn't force me to do much. But playing the violin, like I didn't really like it. I wasn't going to go into music. I didn't understand why I was playing the violin. But playing an instrument, no matter what an instrument is, gives you just basic music knowledge that is just helpful. I, I don't know. I don't know how else to say it. Like you just know like certain things by playing an instrument. So I'm glad I did it. Another thing is swimming. Now it's my opinion that everyone should know how to swim. <laughs> Everybody should know how to swim. It's amazing how many drownings there are in the U.S. and how many kids don't know how to swim. My kids both went through a program at school called drown proofing. Where it's just like, we're not going to teach you to swim, but we're going to teach you how to not drown, which I guess is fine. I think I mentioned I didn't want to get up and go skiing and do all these things. But like we did a lot of skiing when I was a kid. And had we not done that, had they not made me participate in this, take lessons, do all this kind of stuff, like I wouldn't have become a nationally certified snowboard instructor as an adult. Like that was something really cool I was able to do. That's something I didn't know. Because I participated, like I developed some of these basic skills. Yeah, there's tons of stories like that. And I think there is a balance between like 
forcing your kids to do something, but also making sure that it's something that they would appreciate and enjoy. We're not going to get into that parenting talk, but there's many cases like that. And I asked this because it's related to what we're going to talk about today, and we're just going to go right into it. How much paternalism is too much paternalism? In other words, how much should we enforce certain things? This is about society, not just your kids. Like, How much should the government or whatever institution enforce certain things for people for their quote-unquote own good? Big question. Yeah, no, it's a big question. Actually, we've been thinking about this a lot, particularly because of COVID, right? There were a lot of conversations around requiring people to mask, requiring vaccinations, social distancing, those kinds of things. And I think the challenge we have in the U.S. is we have a very individualistic approach to things, right? Even if it's like an individual's success, people tend to think of that success as being an individual achievement, failing to recognize all the things that got them there. Or when businesses are successful, they often don't recognize all of the incentives and the roads that were built for them to be able to move their products, whatever it is. Okay. Government funding. Exactly. But there's a real tension between sort of when government should be stepping in and putting its thumb on the scale to to change behavior. And And for me, the thing that I have been thinking a lot about is sort of what is the cost to the individual versus what is the benefit to society. So in my perspective, asking people to wear a mask in public is super low effort, low cost, except in very rare circumstances, you're not going to significantly harm someone by having them wear a piece of fabric, cloth, whatever, over their face. But it has immense societal benefits. I'm thinking sort of at the height of COVID, right? There are immense benefits in in reducing the spread. And the best example that I saw of why masks are important was this great cartoon where it's two men. One man has COVID and, and one man doesn't. And so, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. So one guy, the person's pants become the, the mask, right? This is the analogy. So there are two men, no pants on the guy with COVID, you know, you pee on the other guy and your pee (laughs) goes and hits the other person. Right. (laughs) And if you're wearing pants, it keeps your skin maybe a little bit protected, but it's going to soak in and and then you're, you know, you get pee on you. But if the person who has COVID and is peeing has pants on, then they pee all over themselves. And if they both have pants on, then there's probably very little likelihood that the non-COVID person is going to get pee on them, right? And so this it's like something as simple as putting on a mask has such immense benefits. Like that to me is something that makes sense. When there is a cost for the person that is more than negligible, and, and I recognize more than negligible cost is different for different people in different contexts. Yeah. But when there are things that are economically required, for example, and we know that there are different impacts on that, then that's where there needs to be a sort of more calculus in terms of what supports the government will give in order to then ask for that behavior. I don't know if that I was trying not to get like too far in the weeds. It is a big question. No. And I agree. I just like to point out like people often misunderstand what a mask is like a mask is not to protect me. It's protect you. Right. In case I have it. And a lot of people don't understand that. Yeah. Right. It's to keep you from getting peed on. Yes. Not that I want to protect myself from your pee. Like, no, it's like (laughs) there is some benefit 
right? They have demonstrated that, yes, there is some benefit, but the benefit is vastly increased when the sick person is wearing the mask. mask. There's two types of mask. There is the surgical, which is preventing your spit from coming out of your mouth. And then there is the full seal N95. And that's the one that protects you because it's a full seal. Air is coming through the mask. Or if you're wearing a surgical mask, air can come through the side, whatever. Anyway, this is not about mask. So we talk a lot about how systems, structures, and environment impacts our thinking and our behavior, which is why public health likes to focus on interventions at those levels because we think big picture and stuff. However, while recognizing that our behaviors are never in a vacuum, like they are influenced by all these factors, we also can't ignore the elephant in the room that sometimes it's just down to individual people to make those right choices. And there isn't that much we can do about what people can and can't do. Obviously, if you're in a country like China, they can make people do something. But in the context of America, sometimes it just comes down to people having to do certain things. Well, and that's why when we're thinking about public health and design of interventions, we come at it from multiple strategies, right? So we we think of the four E's. We think about, can we educate people to do the right things, right? So we talk about public service announcements. We do sex education in schools, whatever the topic is, social media, right? We're, we try to educate people about the right behaviors. The School of Public Health at Hopkins did an amazing job with memes and other sort of funny ways that people were engaging with content to try to promote vaccines and mask usage and stuff like that. Education isn't the only way. It's really hard to change behavior, which is, I'm assuming, what we'll get to. But sometimes we can change the environment. Are there things we can do to the environment, the design of a product, the size of a Road portion? safety, we just talked about. Yeah, road safety. There are things that we can do to the environment to change behavior, to make the safest thing the easiest thing or the healthiest thing the easiest thing. But sometimes those don't work. Sometimes people do things that are harmful for themselves or for others. And at times we need to have rules, regulations, and enforcement, that's the third E, to hold people accountable, to say, that's not the responsible behaviors we want to see. We need to hold you accountable for this. And increasingly, public health is recognizing this fourth E for a very, very long time. We only had three E's. Now we have four, which is economics. Thinking about economic incentives and disincentives to get people to do or not do things that we do or don't want them to do. We have to think about all of these pieces because we have, as you said, environments that we live in. We have social contexts, biological contexts, all of these things that impact what we're trying to do. And nothing is done in isolation and and everything impacts everything else. Yeah. So a big part of public health is changing people's health behavior. And this is typically achieved, like you said, through the four E's, health communication being a big part of them, but, but not always. There are other factors. So today we'll go over some of the other ways that we may be able to change someone's behavior. But let's start with examples of the type of behavior that we may try to target. These behaviors that we target it needs to be within the agency of the individual. So for example, I would love more and better public transportation, but you cannot expect me to spend my spare time digging tunnels for a new subway system, right? That health behavior is impossible. That is not a behavior that we can reasonably expect behavior change. So it needs to be something that's reasonable, reasonably within the agency of the individual. Right. And so it has to be something someone either knows how to do or can do, has the capacity to do, right? Just to kind of sum up what you were saying. So putting aside issues of 
addiction for a moment because that's some whole new topic, a whole other topic. And we can talk about that another time. But there are some things, some topics that people have used health communication to try to change behavior. So thinking about getting people to stop smoking uh, or reduce smoking, getting people to stop or reduce alcohol consumption, healthy eating, which, you know, there's a lot that ties into access to food, which go back to episode very early early (laughs) episodes of season one to talk about sort of food deserts and things. Exercise, which can be challenging if you don't live in an area where you feel safe, like you might not be able to get out and about. I wanted to just briefly mention a few years ago in the before times, the students in the health communications program, they're, each year they're required to create a health communication project. And the best one was trying to convince people to take the stairs as opposed to the elevator. I usually, but this health communication program really solidified for me in the elevator, they would post, avoid social awkward interactions, Yes, <laughs> take the stairs. Or don't let the machines win. That's very cute and creative. Take the stairs. And those really resonated with me because this is a a tangent, which you could totally (laughs) cut out. But when you get onto an elevator, do you have to say hello to the people on the elevator? If somebody says hello to you, do you have to say hello back? And then if you do say hello, when you get off the elevator, are you supposed to say goodbye? (laughs) Like it is, it's awkward. It is awkward. There's no reason for that. (laughs) If you're going up the stairs and somebody's going down the stairs, it's like, sup. You know, you're just like, it's a moment of interaction. You're not like standing in silence awkwardly next to somebody (laughs) while you go up multiple flights of or multiple floors. So don't let the machines win. Take the stairs. (laughs) Yeah, it's very cute. And I remember it too. It was a very cute campaign. It was very successful because it was so cute. Another thing, like, again, no choices are made in a vacuum. But like I said before, they are just some things that you need the individual to decide to do. So how do we change people's health behavior. One thing that I thought about is, well, there's this thing called models of behavior change. There are several models of behavior change. And uh, these are just theoretical frameworks that are out there to sort of guide sort of rationale and thinking about how people may change uh, their behavior. And after some quick research, and this is a common theme in this podcast, there's so many of them. Each one of them are super deep and there's no way that I could like understand all of them and present all of them. There's many of them. I'm sure you can you can think of like a few off the top of your heads, but there's like 12 of them. Yeah. So a really common one is the health belief model. So you sort yes. of what you think about a particular topic impacts then how you behave in relation to that, which makes a lot of sense. It's a very common one. There yeah. are some that also bring in something that we've been talking about, which is agency or your ability, right? Yes. So Can thinking about it? what do you know about a topic? What is your perception of your individual risk that you might have this issue or someone in your family might have this issue? What is your own capacity to change? What is your interest in change? There's the trans theoretical model, sort of thinking about meeting people where they are and the stages of change. Tons of models out there. So there are tons of models. I think one of the core pieces in all of these models around health behavior and behavior change is a recognition that individuals have to have accurate information that resonates with where they are to help them then think about what the right change is for them. Yeah, and there's so many of them. There are pros and cons to all of them, and I'm sure people have written several papers about like so the pros many. and cons. So there many. are whole textbooks. Yeah, I am not going to be able to go through them. So, oh, my behavior change textbook is uh, in my office. I was looking to see if <laughs> I have one here, but I don't. Uh, we're going to approach this more conceptually because there's no way that we can do this theoretically. So let's say there is a behavior that we want people to do for public health. It's flu season. RSV is on the rise. COVID is surging. Let's do something that we're 
all familiar with, which is annual, seasonal, or COVID vaccination. One approach of behavior change that we already talked about is to make the best choice the easiest. And in terms of vaccination, what do you think that will look like? Uh, well, certainly making it free, not having to even run it through your insurance, I think is a big... Big plus. Yeah. It makes it more accessible to everyone. Having them available in convenient locations. Yes. If you have to go far to get your vaccination, that's not going to happen, particularly if you are then in the context of challenging public transit or sort of not having access to, to your own transportation. And then I think it's a really important thing to have some credible messengers who can talk about the importance. Can you communicate it in a way that is relevant and resonating with your target population? You aren't going to present to 18-year-olds a bunch of data on the statistical efficacy of a particular vaccine, right? Like you might use a snappy meme. So we want to make it easy and then also make sure that people have the information that they need to make the decision. Yeah, I have committed this sin before, which is I delayed getting, I say delayed, it's by, by a few weeks. So it's not like a huge delay. I delayed getting my flu shot and my vaccines just out of pure laziness because it's like, oh my God, I have to make an appointment. I have to go to this place. Whereas in Hopkins, there are just weeks. It's like, okay, we have flu vaccine, swing by and get it. I was like, yes, I will do it because I'm here for work already, right? So I th- exactly. employers doing it is helpful because they're there already. You might as well give them the flu shot. So yeah, making the best choice the easiest. And this is something that new that we're going to introduce. It's called the nudge principle. I don't know how applicable it is to vaccines, but we can explain it anyway. No, I think we've sort of been talking around this principle, which is as opposed to paternalism, where somebody says you must do a thing or requiring people to do a thing like, you know, having vaccine mandates, you have to submit into a system. And if you don't want to do it, then you have to get an exception like that is not a nudge. A nudge is, can you make it enticing for somebody to want to do something, whether it's changing the social norms or sort of influencing social norms so that not doing it seems like the weird thing as opposed to to doing it? Or if you can incentivize it in some way, like you were just saying, doing it out at a workplace, that makes it really easy. Because so for me, same thing with my flu shot, I was giving a lecture over in one building. And as I walked back over to my building, I literally just walked right you in. I didn't have to schedule an appointment. Place, yeah. I filled out my paperwork, got my shot. It was like three minutes in and out. Yes, I delayed getting my recent COVID booster because I would have had to schedule an appointment and go somewhere. And then I got COVID, which was awful. Yes. Um, zero out of 10, don't recommend. But so thinking about, we don't want to force people. That's not a nudge. We want to make it enticing and, and make it sort of the, the healthiest behavior that we want people to engage in to seem like a good option. To think about, I was sort of alluding to this a little bit with social norms, but like the default should be that we do a thing, right? So like the, we sort of assume that people are engaging in a particular behavior or we don't give people 50 million choices, as we've talked about previously on the show, we maybe give people one or two choices. And so thinking about giving people the knowledge and the tools that they need to make the the healthy choice. I don't know if that was... No, that makes sense. But I think another big part, this is more for uh, not so much for vaccination, but making the default the preferred. So this is more for like organ donation. If you just default people to like, yes, I'm going to donate, you have to like actively click. Voter registration. Yeah, you have to actively click out of it. That drives up the people who do it by a lot. So you should definitely donate be an organ donor, whether it's uh, after you die and you can give lots of folks lots of your organs or there's options to be a living donor also. And
and I highly recommend it. Yeah, a lot of places, the states realize that if you just default to yes, a lot of people just go with it, and that could be the same for、uh, vaccines too. Like you have to submit a paper form for an exception, rather than you have to submit to sign up for something. You just make the default option to preferred, and that drives up the percentage all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen just not to <laughs> take us too far off track, but we've seen people use that in the opposite. Yes. So there are states where when you renewed your license or your identification, you had to opt out of being a registered voter. But some states were like, "Oh, too many people are registered to vote, and we、I、don't like that." I wonder what states those are. <laughs> and they would they changed it, so then you had to you to couldn't. It was no longer tied to that right. And we saw huge reductions in voter registration because requiring people to do a thing to have the benefit, as you just said, makes it less likely that somebody might then. We have limited capacity, limited energy, limited bandwidth, and so every choice we have to make, where it requires us to do a thing, it makes it less likely we might do some simple things that could have big consequences. Yeah, and the key to this principle is that you never force anything. It's not like you're preventing people from doing something; is that you just make the preferred option super easy so that people are more incentivized to do it. But you're not locking out the other option. So back to behavior change. The the typical public health response with behavior change is health communication, which we mentioned briefly before. And there are multiple courses at Bloomberg about health communications.、Uh, I think we literally just mentioned it、uh, in this episode. And there's again, there's so many theories and models of health communications that we're not going to get into. But one of the things that I would like to bring up, and you sort of alluded to, is central versus peripheral, which is. Uh, I think traditionally people used to think that central was the best. We should probably explain what that means first. So central messaging means that I'm coming to you directly as a person with facts and figures and arguments that you need to process for you to understand. Whereas peripheral is you can think of it as advertising. So like they're not trying to like shove it. Into your face about facts and argument. It's just like, oh, I see this product all the time on subways, or I see this product in in my YouTube videos, or I see this product, whatever. It's just like subtle presence of them in your peripheral. You're not actively processing that information, but you just see it all the time, and that works too. So I think. A big part of I think public health is also trying to go towards that because previously the approach was central, which is okay. We need to publish papers. We need to publish. We need to hold seminars. We need to hold you know public debates or about stuff like that. But I think public health nowadays are also realizing that peripheral is also important. You just need to like remind people all the time what the right thing to do is. So a common theme that we've been talking about, and, and something you may know from your own knowledge of this, but something that we've been talking about several times, both in this episode and in the podcast, is that all of these behaviors. Your change models—they have this thing in common, which is the fact that they know that people are not rational. We've talked before; like sometimes <laughs>、yes. we expect people to make rational choices in an irrational setting or in irrational circumstances. So all of folks acknowledge that this is not just about making sure people know facts, right? Like we can give people facts, but that doesn't always change behavior, right? So, for example. I think it would be very unlikely that you would find someone who would say smoking is good for you. No, right? everyone most knows. Most people acknowledge that smoking is bad for you. It's pointless to tell someone that smoking is bad. They know, like they know, there are other factors influencing their decision. Also, everybody knows that you should wear seatbelts. 
but folks who choose to not wear a seatbelt, it's not because they don't know what a seatbelt is. Like, oh, what's what this, is this strap thing that goes and what's this clip in the car? I have no idea. People know what it is and they're actively choosing to not do it. I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, but when I was young, younger, <laughs> there was the the automatic seatbelts. Oh, that's a that would go. Yeah, that's a relic. <laughs> yeah. And then you had to clip on your own lap belt, but at least you'd have the shoulder strap on. It annoyed people. And so they built them with a, a clip so that you could unhook the thing and then it would just the door thing would move but there'd be no seatbelt strap it's on pointless. it <laughs> so then it's even worse because now people who should theoretically be protected because of this environmental design they gave a loophole to let people <laughs> so um, opt out of it this is one of the reasons one of the many reasons why public health is hard knowledge alone information alone is not enough like it can't just be about educating people although in some circumstances that can be helpful but it needs to be about education and yes and what is the thing that that education is paired with to make it more effective yeah and i i can't agree more and for i think the examples of smoking a seatbelt is like the best example because they know like everyone knows it's not about information anymore it's about other things like maybe built environments maybe your belief like what we mentioned and this is why most behavior change models includes components like norms emotions cognitive variables etc going back to the vaccination example and why it's not just about messaging it's also about giving people the opportunity to change their behavior right like i want to say people know vaccine is good but that is not a right statement because well it's right i think there are that's a topic where there is a lot of misinformation and so there are balances between like what do we have the capacity to provide and then there's also an issue of people being told wrong information and then not wanting to use the resources that have been made available to them, right? So there, there are some challenges. Yeah. And we will make a whole episode about misinformation because that's just a huge topic that public health tends with all the time. Um, but hopefully this episode gives you like a good introduction to the concepts of health behavior change we didn't get into the theoretical models because again please go to school for that (laughs) we're not we're not capable of breaking down all the models maybe in the future Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen. It helps the show immensely. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. Follow us on Twitter for now at everythingisph or Instagram at everythingispublichealth. You can also find me on Twitter for now at Dr. Krafasi. More information regarding this episode can be found in the show notes below. Listeners, we have a Patreon page that is also our website. Visit a website for all major updates and bonus material. If you want to support us, uh, you can support us on our Patreon page as well. You can find a link for that in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.